The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another Out of the Question podcast. This is Pastor Charles Roberts, and I am joined by my co-host, Andrea Schwartz. Hello, Andrea. Hello, Beck. We are recording this on October 31st, which, as you all know, is All Hallows' Eve, uh, which uh, on the secular calendar is called Halloween. And so we thought it would be appropriate to visit this topic. You may have thought you've heard about it many times before, but it really bears asking the question, should Christians observe or participate or otherwise acknowledge the holiday or festive occasion that has come to be known as Halloween? But behind that question, as we try to get behind the things that we ask on these podcasts, is a much larger issue. And I'm going to toss it back to Andrea to have her tell us what that is. All right. So anytime you're afraid of anything or you have to be wary of something, it's always good to know is it because you really understand there's a threat or there's a problem? And so when I was growing up, you got dressed up for Halloween, you went around, you got candy, you ate too much of it, um, you were probably hyper or sick the next day. And because I went to a parochial school, we always had off the next day, so there was no danger of having to get up too early, and you, you know, had fun. But we never thought too much about it, especially because – I grew up as Catholic, and as going to Catholic school, we always celebrated various feast days, and so the church calendar had an awful lot to do with various things. So I never really thought of it in terms of goblins or witches or things like that. But most people would have to acknowledge over the past number of decades, it's gotten much darker in a lot of ways, and some Christians feel as though they are being unfaithful to God's word if they participate in the dress up. And because October 31st also happens to be the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door at Wittenberg, a lot of churches, instead of celebrating Halloween, celebrated as Reformation Day. And so rather than have it be an either or, we thought it would be a good idea to invite a guest on who not only understands and is very knowledgeable on church history, but he has to put legs to what he thinks because not only is he one who is a headmaster of a Christian school, he is somebody who heads a congregation. And so you have to put legs to what you believe. And Charles, I'll let you introduce our guest. Yes, we are very, very pleased to have with us today Reverend Steve Macias who is the pastor-rector of St. Paul's Anglican Church in Los Altos, California. And he's also the headmaster of the Canterbury Christian School. Like all of us tend to be on these podcasts, he also has uh, received a great deal of benefit in the writings and uh, study of the works of R.J. Rustuni. Steve, welcome very much to our podcast. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you. And he's had to sort of sequester himself because he's right in the middle of his school day. Well, would you um, get us started by um, giving us sort of the, maybe the religious or church ecclesial background of the holiday that used to be celebrated, and of course in many churches still is, as a, as a religious Christian holiday? Right, and, and what we know is All Hallows' Eve, or 
Halloween began with the celebration of All Saints Day. So in the 4th century under Emperor Diocletian, there was a great persecution of Christians and thousands of Christians were killed. And as is the Christian tradition, those who are martyred for the faith are to be remembered uh, as saints of God. And so since so many were killed under Diocletian, there was not enough time or days on the calendar to set up an appropriate vigil for each person. And in many cases, there were so many killed that we didn't even know their names. So there began this tradition around the fourth century of setting one day aside for the church calendar to remember all the saints of God. And this tradition existed both in the East and West, and it eventually by the seventh century had fallen on November the 1st, which is the day after today. And part of this tradition of having a, a vigil before it and a Hallow's Eve is part of this old tradition of having vigils to begin with, of having a service before the service to get right with God and to get right with our Creator before holding you know, a divine service or a Holy Communion service. What I think is interesting here is that what Halloween eventually became or what All Hallows Eve evolved into was sort of like a full Mardi Gras. In preparation for Lent, we have this Mardi Gras celebration, all of us are familiar with it, where everybody tries to get out all of their sin and debauchery and gluttony before they have to enter a period of fasting. Well, that's the same thing that's happening here with All Saints Day. So in the church calendar, All Saints Day falls right around the same time as Advent, you know, the twin penitential season. So just as Christians traditionally fasted during Lent, they'd also enter a period of fasting for Advent. And so beginning with All Saints Day, going into Advent, you had this All Hallows Eve vigil that evolved into a you know, harvest Mardi Gras. So are you saying that this was something based on godlessness as opposed to godliness, or was there some benefit to having All Hallows Eve? Well, I think there's always, always a benefit, but it's interesting from a historical perspective to see how even the best of days and vigils can easily be uh, distorted in their meaning. Now, from a liturgical Christian like myself who follows the church calendar, you know, we'll have a service tonight for, for All Hallows' Eve, and we'll remember the saints that have passed. In fact, even at our school today, we had a, a service remembering our recently passed rector, Ronald Johnson, and remembering our founder, Reverend Milbank, looking back on these saints and anticipating the victory of God in All Saints' Day. But the idea that Halloween somehow has pagan origins or that Halloween somehow is an enemy to the faith is not really defensible historically. You know, Halloween has always been Christian property. Now, the question is, have the people who celebrate it always been faithful to their Christian identity? Charles, don't you think that we've lost a sense of saints? I think a lot of people think of saints as things that statues depict, but the saints are how the scripture references the people of God, the children of God. Yes, of course, uh, we all are saints if we've been sanctified by God's Holy Spirit. But I think that uh, th there's another element to your question that I'd like to key off on and that uh, Steve has been referring to, and that is the, the, the nature of time and the importance of days that we set aside. Now, of course, in the Reformed Protestant tradition, we uh, acknowledge the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath. But our listeners should understand that in the continental Reformed churches especially that have not been adversely affected by 
the anti-liturgical nature of much of American evangelical Christianity. There are some of these days that are still observed, uh, All Saints Day in some, and definitely Ascension Day is a big, big day in the Dutch Reformed Church. Church I used to pastor in upstate New York, we had a retired Dutch Reformed minister, and he was always uh, elbowing me about, you need to have Ascension Day celebration here, and this sort of thing. But, you know, there's another side to this as well, apart from uh, the fact that we are all saints in one sense, but we also should remember those who've gone before us in the faith. I like the way that sometimes I refer to our Westminster Confession of Faith. I've heard the, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Canons of Dort referred to the same way as the voice of our fathers. I think it was Chesterton who said that tradition is giving your ancestors a vote. There's some wisdom in that. We, we certainly stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. But one final point I'd like to stress on this uh, larger topic of days being observed And uh, this was pointed out to me some years ago by a man who was Presbyterian and who became Anglican, actually. And uh, he was using the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, and he pointed out that you not only have virtually every day of the year devoted to some aspect of the Christian faith in in the liturgical year and in the lectionary, but the remarkable thing was is that this 1928 Book of Common Prayer had lectionary readings that went almost into the 21st century. Beyond that, you mean we have calendars that go on for centuries in some of these books, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the point he was making is that clearly at least those Anglican forebears had a view of the continual triumph of the gospel in time and in history. No, certainly so, and especially with all saints, I mean, this is the, the confirmation of what the resurrection teaches. It's the comfort to all of us who have experienced death. It's to have a day remembering that death is dead. And I think that's especially important when Halloween is so fixated on love of death, right? So, I mean, the Proverbs tell us that all those that hate me loveth death. And that's very, you know, very simply seen in all of our horror movies and death that we see really promoted and and suggested on Halloween. But the opposite is actually true. The All Saints Day is that the triumph of life over death, the triumph of lightness over darkness, And Halloween is such a weak holiday compared to All Saints Day. And I think that's reflective of an eschatology of defeat. If you have people who think we've been saved to lose, as opposed to victorious in Christ, then they're more than willing to let there be this religious appropriation. We hear a lot about cultural appropriation, that you're not allowed to dress in the culture of someone whose ethnic origin is different than yours. But the church, by and large, has had a lot of its celebrations co-opted so that Easter has its bunnies and Christmas has its reindeers. I think it's time for Christians to realize their very rich heritage and something like the Book of Common Prayer, understanding those who came before us in Fox's Book of Martyrs is really important if you're going to say, who are we and who were our forebears? I think that's absolutely right, especially considering that much of the symbolism used for Halloween was even the evil and the ugly stuff was originally Christian in origin. Uh, Dr. James Jordan talks about the gargoyle, for example, you know, this monster of a creature that you find all throughout the old world churches. In many senses, it looks just like a demon or, or a devil, but it has this gnarled face or this weird smile or horns and wings and webbed feet. You know, why, why would churches adorn themselves with gargoyles or demons? And Jordan points out that the intention behind this was 
to mock Satan, that to show that demons and, and all of these things have been defeated. And that only comes from a cathedral mindset, the idea that the church is marching forward in victory and Satan has already been defeated. And it's not a coincidence that these features are missing from you know, evangelical megachurches. I was reading an essay by Greg Bonson on the subject of Satanism, and it appeared in one of the early journals of Christian Reconstruction. And he points out, which I found very interesting, that when Satan is described as the ruler of this world or the prince of the power of the air, those should be looked at statements of mockery because he clearly is not equal to Christ. Psalm 2 tells us that God is never worried. This isn't a fair fight. This isn't the dark side of the force against the good side of the force. This is clearly a situation where Satan only has the power within the boundaries God gives him. So I find it odd when there are Christians who, who say that we can't even go near something that talks about demons and devils because they actually assign power that they have power, but they don't have ultimate power, nor do they have power superior to Jesus Christ. I'd like to follow up on something that Steve mentioned in quoting Proverbs 8 about those who hate God's wisdom or in love with death. And this probably goes without saying, but I think it needs to be said anyway. For those of us, especially uh, Andrea, we'll, we'll date ourselves uh, of our generation. Uh, I can well remember the neighborhood where I grew up here in South Carolina. All the kids in the neighborhood, we went trick-or-treating. But most of the people were dressed up as Batman or Superman or some you know, fair, fairly heroic or good sort of character. You rarely saw anybody dressed like the devil. But now it is just astounding that the things that have come about, the acceptability of carnage and destruction and bloodletting. Uh, that one of the local TV stations, and, and here in this part of South Carolina, this is you know literally the buckle of the Bible Belt, the local TV channels, put on your costumes and we'll show them. And they had some guy dressed up with a, with a hatchet, you know, some serial killer looking thing. And it's just hard to describe how, how our culture has become so desensitized to these things. And then you have TV sh- series and shows that uh, celebrate carnage. Even there was one, I won't mention the name of it. The, the, the hero was a guy who went around exacting private justice against bad guys. And he did so by carving them up and kill it, killing them and carving them up. The signs of, of the truth of Proverbs 8 are, are all around us. Well, and especially in, in media. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest reasons why uh, Christians are, are so you know, afraid and, and hate Halloween so much is because it is a celebration of, of horror, death, and evil. And you can see this with whether it's the, the movie or the costumes or the blood or the love of all things dark. Now, uh, Doug Wilson over at Christchurch in Moscow wrote about this a few years ago, and he talked about this idea of atonement that we know is true, right? So we know even in our basic carnal state that we need an atonement. And so horror, you know, dressing up as as killers, dressing up as monsters, or watching these horror movies on the screen and watching other people, that horror is this feeble attempt at what we might describe as, as catharsis. You know, he says that a sinner you and I go into a a movie theater, right? We know in our hearts that we're condemned, that we deserve to die. And then we look up at the screen and we see a woman or a man or a monster spill their blood, right? There's this literal catharsis. There's this watching of 
blood transfer of guilt, right? This is very Old Testament. And we see the blood, we walk out of the theater, and we feel for a moment, you know, that transference, that somehow we were made alive by the spilling of that blood. I think that's the source of what this evil emphasis of Halloween is. It's this natural desire for a cathartic sacrifice, you know, looking to a false sacrifice rather than Christ. And so because they, they hate Christ and they love death, they look for the blood to be spilt on the screen or in their costumes or in their books. They're looking for horror to make a sacrifice of their lives. And I think when we think about what we're supposed to put our attention on, Philippians tells us to think on those things that are pure and right and good. I think there's a place for the expression of dressing up like those that we honor. And one of the traditions at Canterbury, which is where Steve is the headmaster, they have a parade on All Saints Day, don't they? We do. And although I'm tempted to believe that, you know, this tradition that's now decades old was began as an alternative to Halloween, it's really become bigger than Halloween at our school. We have all of the students dress up as whether they're saints or angels or even uh, various creatures from the ark. We had some, some butterflies and bees last year. But the kids all come to school dressed up in, a, in a, a costume reflecting the goodness of creation. And we parade around singing a song from our hymn book that's appropriate for children called the Saints of God. And it describes what I think is the most important part about All Saints Day is that each and every one of us are called to a sacred vocation. If you're familiar with the Song of the Saints of God, it goes through these different lives of people. You know, one was a priest, one was a doctor, there's a queen, a shepherdess. It goes through individual vocations. And like Andrea said at the beginning of this call, we often confuse saints as some esoteric or mystical figures. You know, we think of uh, St. Francis talking to animals, or we think of St. Christopher, who helps us find lost things. This song in our parade puts the emphasis on our individual responsibility, individual vocations, our calling in God. And so we have the children come out and sing this song, celebrate All Saints Day, and remember that their calling, you know, these 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12-year-olds come out and they remember that God has a special calling on their lives, and this day is set aside for their goal to become saints of God before the throne room, and that those are expressed in their various vocations and the various spheres of life, a proper Kuyperian understanding of saintliness. I think because some traditions of Christianity actually worship and pray to saints, people will get the idea that we can't honor them at all. I mean, no, we don't pray to Jesus's mother, Mary, but we should honor her after all. She was called blessed among women. And so I remember when I used to run a, a co-op class where we would do public speaking, I would encourage the girls in the class to memorize the Magnificat. I would encourage the boys to memorize Zechariah's prayer. In other words, these are our ancestors. And just like we honor or should honor our grandparents and our forebears, we do so when we talk about the founding fathers, we should look at these people as our ancestors. And it's appropriate to recognize them, not as gods, but as faithful saints. No, I completely agree. And there's, there's a great tradition in Christianity to model our lives after the various you know, charisms. I, I mentioned St. Francis. And 
we all think of, of Francis as uh, some peacenik or someone who could talk to animals. But his real mission, uh, the real thing that he was involved in was creating a people who were returning to the reformation of the church. He's one of those early reformers who's bringing power back to the, to the laity. But that's not discussed because we're too focused on the mystical or the ritual adoration of saints. I think that for Protestants who maybe have um, never considered All Saints Day, the temptation to ignore it because of getting into divination or praying to saints, what's most important is that you're familiar with these stories. Andrea mentioned the Book of Martyrs. I mean, how many of you know that the origin of the Christmas tree is Boniface cutting down Thor's tree? Or how many of us know that the origin of All Saints Day is eclipsing these Celtic or uh, all of these uh, native ideas of ancestor worship? How many of us pay attention to what G.K. Chesterton described as the mythology of religion, where when Christians went out and encountered pagan cultures, much like what we're encountering today in post-Christian world, there was already an existing tradition or culture or understanding of the world, and that we need to replace something or replace whatever's existing there with something else. We can't, as uh, we've often said and heard, we can't beat something with nothing. So to retreat from Halloween and offer nothing in its place uh, is not a victory stance, but instead we should do as our early church fathers and saints did before us. When they came to the Celtic lands and they saw these men preparing for winter by having fires and having parties for their gods, they replaced it by remembering their own saints and their own traditions, teaching good morals and theology through history and not just through the scripture. Steve, let me ask you, uh, I'm sure that there in Silicon Valley, as around the rest of the country, you have mostly, I would assume, Pentecostal or evangelical type churches that have Halloween alternatives, you know, the trick or trunk. Some of them do these things where they, they put together these garish things about this is what it looks like when you die and go to hell. It's designed to scare scare the satanic inclinations out of you. What um, what would be some of your thoughts about those efforts to try to improve Halloween, so to speak? I would counsel this, that whatever you win folks with is what you win them to. Right? So if you win them with a fancy, scary mo- ghosts and monsters, that the Christianity that you get out of them is only going to be as deep as that scare right, is the, uh, the idea that somehow one-minute gospel lectures will get instant conversions, will only get Christians who are one minute deep. So the part of Halloween and, and these garish things that you mentioned that are important is that we are responding and interacting with our culture. What I think is not as fruitful about them is what Andrew says at the beginning, is that it's always a retreat mentality focused on death, right? Focused on short-term victories. Even the entire idea of their gospel track is the destination being get you saved or get you rescued from hell. Now, if we were to replace all of those events with saints days, right? With all saints day, the trajectory, the telos, the whole trajectory changes into, well, what can we do to make saints exist here on earth? What can we do to bring the kingdom about on our territory Instead of seeing ourselves as a minority who is always pushed around by the culture and the spirit of the age, why can't we take over and say, as Andrea mentioned before, that we have the victory? 
the light always conquers the darkness. I think that's uh, much more fruitful than, as I said, one-minute gospel lectures and one-minute deep Christians. Of course, my objection to Halloween as it's currently celebrated is that it sort of becomes this uh, situation where you have to answer your door, you have to give people candy. Well, I don't ever buy candy. I think it's poison. Why would I give people poison? And uh, everybody seems to know. We even have dentists in our area who have big signs that they'll buy back people's candy. And I'm like, what is wrong with people? The whole idea of giving a treat was people knew who they were going to. You'd go to your neighbors. You knew your neighbors. Now, in our area, you may laugh at this, people hire Uber to take them to wealthier or more affluent areas so they can go trick-or-treating there and then be, quote-unquote, safer. They don't even know who these people are. And so, to me... We, we've not only lost a sense of the history, but we do things that are nonsensical. I think it's nonsensical. I'm just having this image of a couple of six-year-olds showing up the Schwartz household and being given kale and bean sprouts instead of candy. <laughs> no, I just basically don't answer the door. Uh, because <laughs> later on at night, sometimes you have people who you have a hard time wondering if they're over 20 years old. In other words, why are you going out? <laughs> um, I'm not exactly sure what it is. So um, it just pretty much, I sort of hope the light doesn't go on when people come to the door or I'm someplace else. But it's it's because, not because I don't like to see little children dressed up and go, oh, who are you? It's just that I'm not going to give them money and I'm not going to give them candy. And I know some people want to give out gospel tracts, but <laughs> those end up in the trash can because what they want is money or candy. <laughs> That's right. Well, there's also the other perspective on that, and I'm tempted to be this. Uh, you've been here to St. Paul's and know that I live here on campus with the church and school, and so our house is actually the front of the campus. So to get to our front door, people have to walk by a giant sign that says St. Paul's Anglican Church. And so I've taken the position this year that I'm going to have the record. You know, I want everybody to think, I'm going to go to the parsonage at St. Paul's because they hand out gobs and gobs of candy. Um, <laughs> So that's, I'm going to take the exact opposite perspective as you, Andrea. I'm going to be the house that has the most candy. <laughs> okay. All right. Are you going to buy it back if they can't eat it all? Of course not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting though, because you know, the candy and the costumes, all of these things, if you go online, you can find little bits of stories about the origin. You know, if you, even some of Russia's sermons, he mentions that, Halloween's dangerous. There's people who find razor blades in their candy. There's people who find, you know, poisonous or open things. And there's, of course, been news stories over the years of how dangerous trick-or-treating is. But it seems that Christians are especially prone to look for evil in anything that's not explicitly gospel track, right? So James Jordan talks about this uh, in a paper he wrote on Halloween probably several decades ago now. But he compared it to the idea of Chinese food. Have you heard this before, Andrea? Uh, yeah, no, you, I think we've talked about it. So yeah, share it. I think it's interesting. I haven't. Well, please share it. <laughs> <laughs> so mocking the idea uh, of, of putting aside Halloween, Jordan says, consider Chinese food, right? He talks about how this foreign thing from the East really undermines Christian values. And he can't understand why any Christians would go and spend money at a Chinese restaurant, Right. Of course, Chinese food is a symbol of Eastern monism, 
right? Think about the Chinese food itself. Here in the West, we properly understand that we're supposed to separate our foods. We put the mashed potato on one side of the plate, we put the steak on the other, and the green beans here in the middle, and never should they meet. But here, we recognize that that's uh, one in the many, right? So there's one meal and there's different parts of it, constituent parts, but that pagan Chinese food, that pagan Chinese food wants to put it all together. They mix their vegetables and their meat and their sweets and their sauces all together and have one food, clearly undermining any type of Christian idea, right? It's even worse than that, though. Not only are they philosophically a problem, they put this evil poison in their food, too. You heard of this uh, MSG, right? It causes hyperactivity in children. It causes cancers in adults. So not only is Chinese food pagan in how it's put together and its origins, it came from no Christian country, but it's also just this poison that we're giving to our children. I can't understand why anyone would ever want to set foot in a Chinese restaurant at all. Now, as I'm saying this, I'm sure Christians recognize how ridiculous this is because Chinese food is the best kind of food. Um, (laughs) But I think that we can get carried away. I mean, we could even look at, well, who are the people who most enjoy Chinese food? Well, it's the pagans of China or the pagans of the Southeast. And so we can get carried away with our understanding of Halloween in this same type of way. Right. Who are the people that are enjoying Halloween? Well, it's the, the non-believers. Or who, what are the origins of Halloween? Well, obviously, it's Satan worshipers and witches. So James Jordan is cautioning us to not look at the world like it's Chinese food, but rather, as we keep saying, that recognizing all things belong to Christ first and uh, not to the world. And I might add that at Canterbury Christian School, there is a preponderance of Chinese Christians. So no one should take Steve's tongue-in-cheek analogy to mean anything other than that there are uh, very dedicated Christians. And my affiliation with the school has been for well over 20 years. And some of the more faithful families have been those who recognize the superiority of Christian education sometimes much more so than native-born Americans. That's certainly so. Yeah, and so the problem with origins, we see this with Bible studies. You know, someone will get into uh, a Greek word. What does it mean? And they'll say, well, in my lexicon or in my Bible dictionary, it says that this Greek word originally meant this, right? You'll see this in uh, discussions about all kinds of things. They'll make the same mistake with feast days and with saints days. They'll say, well, All Saints Day was never practiced by Jesus, and it was never practiced by the early apostles. It was actually innovated by some pope in the 7th century. Therefore, it can't possibly be any good. And they forget that Christianity was undivided for a thousand years, and this was practiced all throughout Christianity, that the same folks who preserved our Bible and our traditions gave us this day, setting aside a day of remembrance for our saints. And we could add and say the Bible doesn't command anybody to celebrate birthdays or anniversaries per se, yet we do. And most of our holidays, which, you know, started off from being holy days, are very secular now. Now we celebrate president's birthdays. Now we celebrate the flag or the Constitution or whatever it is. And we have lost the idea that we're supposed to celebrate and having a good excuse or a good reason to celebrate God's goodness only brings positives, not negatives. 
That's right. And we should remember how God views the negatives in history, right? What does God view? What is his view on the pagan views of history or the, the creepy crawlies on history? He looks up them and, and he laughs. Psalm 2 says that Yahweh breaks them to pieces and he sits in the heavens, holds them in derision, and he laughs because our Lord mocks all that is evil. Our Lord has already conquered all that is evil. And there really needs to be a break in Christian thinking about retreat versus advance. And our Halloween could be a good opportunity for us to be doing, begin doing that. And I think that has application in so many other areas. Instead of the reason we homeschool is we don't want the bad influences, the public school. Okay, that's a reason, but it's a very minor reason. Or the reason I want to send my child to a Christian school, it's because I want them trained in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so they can go out and conquer in Jesus' name. Not because we need to be afraid of those bad influence. Well, those bad influences are there because Christians have retreated. They've looked at storming the gates of hell as if the gates of hell somehow or other are chasing after them. Well, gates don't chase. Go to the gate. <laughs> That's right. Run towards the lions, you know, as some of our early Christians would say. On the other side of this, I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate, um, which is a, a phrase related to saints, by the way. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the devil's advocate process, but there's also a temptation among modern Christians to kind of fit in with our culture, right? And I'm very sympathetic to Christians who don't want to do Halloween because they don't want to be like the world. And so there are some Christians who don't want to be weird, right? Who don't want to be the only folks not dressing up on Halloween. They want to be, they don't want to be the only house with their lights off on Halloween. They don't want to be their only kids who are not celebrating Halloween. But our call as Christians is going to be a little weird. Can I ask all of our Christian listeners to keep being a little weird? Uh, (laughs) Is that so much uh, a strange thing to say? But that God is so much unlike us that there is nothing in this world that will conform to him except for those who seek after him in his word. So we're always going to be challenged to be a little bit weird. And so don't celebrate Halloween uh, if you think it's part of being a good American, or don't celebrate Halloween because you think it's part of being a good parent. Uh, Remember the true purpose of all of our days, and that God's holiness calls us to be a little bit weird. And that I am certainly sympathetic with families who say, we're going to sit out Halloween. Well, we are called to be peculiar people, and we are a peculiar people. So instead of trying to not wear that, wear it with not so much pride, but with honor that we have been set apart. But I'd like you to explain a little bit about the origins of the devil's advocate. I've never really liked the term. I try to work it into being the Savior's advocate, but that doesn't work either because the Savior doesn't need an advocate. So why don't you give the origins of that? Okay, so the question begins with, what is the devil's advocate? And so the devil's advocate is actually an office inside the Roman Catholic Church. And it's not been used as much, but during the medieval period, it was a very popular office. So when you needed to create a person into a saint, the canonization process. You needed somebody to represent the evil of that person. So starting from the beginning on canonization, if you were martyred or if you were recognized universally as a saint, you made it into the calendars of the church. But as the centuries went on, they needed to develop a process of 
what qualifies somebody to be added to the church calendar as a saint? So they would set up a committee, a commission, and they would take that person's life and they would weigh it against the standards of what it meant to be a saint. And there'd be one person appointed as the devil's advocate. And his job was to go and talk to that individual's family, their acquaintances, people that knew them from growing up and see if there was any dirt they could find on that person to disqualify them from being considered canonized as a saint. So to be the devil's advocate is to look for any impurity in their lives. And if they made it through the devil's advocate, they could be added to the All Saints Day (laughs) celebration. (laughs) I see. That's maybe probably where we have this erroneous view that you have to be canonized to be a saint. But nonetheless, the devil's advocate, usually the, the way I've always understood it, is that somebody's going to bring up those things you don't want to hear and gives you an opportunity to respond to it, which sounds like is part and parcel with the origins that if the person made it through canonization, there was more to commend the person than to disqualify him. Right. I can't imagine having to be the devil's advocate because imagine the chief, you know, the chief bishop of your city says, we're going to recommend Andrea Schwartz for canonization. And he's, she's widely loved by all these people and lived a holy life. And then now your job is to show all the horrible things she's done. It's, it's not a, an honorable title. Well, I think it's important to also remember, as we talked about a little earlier, and as we sort of come down to the final moments of our podcast, as I mentioned, the importance of the sanctification of time and the reclaiming uh, of God's authority over all aspects of life. It's interesting when we consider the nature of pagan society into which Christianity emerged and eventually dominated. We know from early church history that there were a variety of uh, celebrations and feasts relating to various things in ancient pagan society that Christianity simply took over and, in a sense, quote-unquote, baptized. That's a, a, a very broad generalization. But in Alexander Schmemann's book, The Historical Road of Eastern Orthodoxy, he talks about how the early church unashamedly said, yes, that's exactly what we did. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, we have taken over these things and shown and taken them under the authority uh, of Christ and his church. But the point I want to make is, is that in that early pagan culture, most, if not all, of these celebrations were either endorsed by or promoted by the state, by the Roman authority. And so they were very much bound up with state worship. Now, I don't know if we can claim that Halloween is in that category, but it certainly has become a secular sanctified uh, observance in our culture today. I think that's absolutely right. And it comes down to your spheres of influence or or spheres of sovereignty. Whenever you take something away from the church, including the calendar, it strengthens up another sphere. And I think the state has always recognized that, or at least the anti-Christian folks have always recognized that if we can take the control of time away from Christians, take their calendar away, it takes away their, their authority in society. Now, on, on your notion of time, I think it's also important to recognize that all of these pagan cultures, whether they're Celtic or Germanic or Greek or Roman, all of them have this cyclical view of history, right? That their lives are really not of much consequence because they're not the ones in control of their future. They're subject to the, the cruel fate of the gods or all the things in their lives don't really count. Christianity and All Saints Day really, you know, strikes at the core of that because it says 
that not only does this life matter, but that there is something after this life that's being aspired to and growing um, and really fits well with our linear view of Christian uh, history, that somehow this life matters, the next life matters, and then after the resurrection, there's another life that also matters. And so while, I, while our pagan roots would have this very cyclical and dead view of the calendar, we remember this All Saints Day every year as kind of a, a remark against the determinism of the pagan world. That's an excellent thought. All right, gentlemen, usually this is the point of the podcast where we have some book recommendations. Charles, we'll start with you. Are there any books you would recommend as being useful for people who want to pursue this a little bit more? Sadly, I really don't. I'm going to defer to uh, Reverend Macias and his, him, his wisdom on this point. <laughs> right. Well, I think the beginning of what needs to happen with Christians is they need to be, understand where symbols and pictures and the calendars come from. So a very big introduction to that would be, uh, I've mentioned him today, Jordan's Through New Eyes. You know, what does it mean to worship the stars or, or the, uh, what does it mean for the sun to rise and darkness? Why are these symbols in the scripture and why are they used by pagans? You know, right now, October 31st, November 1st, we are closing a season and opening up winter. What did that mean to ancient people for winter to come? Why was it correlated with death? Now, we in our air-conditioned homes don't think that way, but we need to open our eyes to how the Bible thought about things and how ancient man thought about things. So Through New Eyes is one. The other one that's really helpful, I think, on this topic is called The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. And so in that, he goes through all the various mythologies of the old world. Specifically, uh, he loved the Norse mythologies and shows how in the heart of man, what St. Paul said in Romans was true, that in their heart they knew they were guilty and that they knew that the God who had created them had called them to a higher life. And so he points to how all of these ancient pagan theologies, whether it was Odin and the tree and his son being sacrificed on it, or whether it was the more recent Roman ideas of brothers killing each other, that all of these pointed to biblical truths that whether through Babel or through corruption of language or through just corruption of history, had been given pagan ideas. Chesterton points out that all truth at its base is God's truth. And even fallible man with his mythology is striving towards true sacrifice, true atonement with the true God. And so when we consider something as pagan as our modern Halloween, uh, reading the everlasting man and understanding the mythology of paganism, I think would be very helpful. Actually, Andrea, I do have one. Okay, go. <laughs> I remembered one and I forgot it. Now I've remembered it. I, I would like to recommend uh, to our listeners, uh, in addition to what uh, Steve has recommended, Gary North's book, Unholy Spirits. I believe you can get that for free at uh, GaryNorthsFreeBooks.com. And it is an excellent study of the rise of occultism in the 20th century and now the 21st century, which tangentially at least addresses some of these issues. And a non-theological work, you know, uh, The Possessed, as case study in demons. I think Rush has actually recommended it in a couple of lectures, but it's called The Possessed, or also called The Demons, by um, Fyodor Dostoevsky. I'm saying that completely wrong. I'm sorry. Oh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, yes. There we go. The Russian there we go. writer, yes. And in that book, it's a fiction, but he makes the case that modernism and Satanism are, go hand in hand, and it shows the progression of man away from God's government into statism is a natural progression from 
self-rule into state rule, which is ultimately satanic rule. Very good. I think we've kind of tackled this subject well. Thank you, Steve, for participating with us today. And listeners, we've heard from some of you this past week that you've benefited from the podcast and it's gotten some of you thinking in areas that you sort of knew you needed to put attention with and now you are. So feel free to contact us via email at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, Charles. Yes, thank you, Andrea. And yes, thank you, Steve, very much. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit kingdomdrivenfamily.com. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.